Hi, my name is Caroline Durham and I'm the Minister of Children here at Heights Baptist Church. Thanks for joining us online today. You can find our content on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and at our website, heightschurch.org slash connect. You can let us know that you joined us today um, and let us know how we can be praying for you. Thanks for joining. We have been in the Gospel of Mark, just taking a sermon, a chapter a week. Uh, and so Mark chapter 3 is where we are today. And I, I want to just ask you this one question right off the bat. Uh, and you just don't have to answer this out loud, but just think about it to yourself. When it comes to Jesus, who do you characterize Jesus to be? Uh, do you, who do you say he is? There was a, a philosopher by the name of Pastor John Roberts back in the 18th century. He was a Scottish pastor, and he came up with what's called the trilemma argument. Now, the trilemma philosophical argument that I'm about to give you, uh, many of you probably know what it is, and you think, well, wait a minute, that, that's C.S. Lewis. I've heard that before, and C.S. Lewis actually took what Pastor Roberts uh, did, and he just kind of made it a little more famous and known, but the trilemma argument is this when it comes to Jesus, you're going to identify him as one of three types of people. You're either going to confess him as a liar, as a lunatic, or as the Lord? Who is he? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is the Lord? And, and listen to what Pastor Robert said. He said, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he himself deluded and, self and was deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. So Christ either deceived mankind by fraud or he himself was deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. So who is he? Is he liar, lunatic, or Lord? Because what you are going to find in the Gospels of Mark is that you cannot push Jesus aside. You cannot just say, well, I don't want to think about it, and I'm just going to be neutral, and I'm not going to make a decision. No, this Jesus demands a verdict. This Jesus, you have to say, he is one of these three types of people. Either he was lying, or he was out of his mind, or he really is the Lord. See, that's what I would call the Jesus problem, that everybody has to make a decision when it comes to to Christ. And I want you to notice in Mark chapter 3, uh, there are already some folks that have stepped up and made these declarations of who Jesus is. When we pick up in chapter 3, let's go to verse 11. And the first person in, in chapter 3 that's going to confess Jesus are going to be the demons. Now, I want you to notice what verse 11 says. It says, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Don't you notice what the demon said? He said, you are the Son of God. Jesus, you are Lord. Now, that's not the first time the demons did that. Let's go back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, you pick up in verse 24. And this is the very first confession in Mark's gospel of the identity of Christ being Lord. Verse 24 of chapter 1, it says, have you, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing in him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Did you notice those two confessions by the demons? Jesus, you are Lord. 
In the Gospel of Mark, you're going to see this pattern over and over again. You're going to find it again in chapter 5, that it is often the demons who make the confession Jesus is Lord before any human in Mark's Gospel. Now understand this, that even though they've called him the Son of God, even though they have called him Lord, this is not a saving confession. Yes, they've rightly identified who Christ is, but they are not turning their lives over to Christ. They're not giving him control of their lives. In order to be saved, yes, you rightly identify Christ as Lord, but you are believing him by faith. You have surrendered the control of your life, and now you're following Jesus. But did you notice back in chapter 1 what the demon said? He said, have, have you come to torment us? Mark chapter 5, the demons are going to say the same thing. Jesus, why are you here before the time is what they are saying. Have you come to destroy us? See, what's happening in the lives of the demons when Christ is here on earth is really some confusion. Because the demons know they're defeated. They know their days are numbered. See, they know what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 10 through 11. That there is coming a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, those in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth. And so I think what happens here in the Gospels when Christ is here on the earth and these demons run up to him the first time, they're like, whoa, 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 hang on. Is this the time? You're early. What are you doing here? Is this the Philippians 2, 10, and 11 moment? Are you about to make us bow our knee and destroy us? No, that day is coming. Why did Christ come the first time? He came for salvation. He came to deliver us. That's what Mark's gospel starts out with. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this first confession you're going to see in chapter 3 is that of the demons who, yes, rightly identify Christ as Lord. The second confession you're going to see, let's pick up in verse 20, is a lunatic-type confession. And this is going to come from a surprising group. It says, Then Christ went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And we're starting to see in Mark's gospel, wherever Jesus goes, there's a crowd. And there's a crowd that's starting to press in on him, and his popularity is really rising. But I want you to notice verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. His family says, Jesus, you're a lunatic. You're out of your mind. You've lost it, right? The marbles have been spilt all over the floor. You're out of your mind. And they've come to seize him. Now, that word seize there is a very strong word in the Greek, means to arrest Right? So what they're saying is when they show up, it's Jesus, you're coming home with us. You don't have a choice. We're going to drag you out of here by force, kicking and screaming if we have to. Now, I want to pause right here and be very fair to the family. All right? Let's read this with a little bit of grace, shall we? Because one thing we often do is when we read our Bibles... We don't read them very contextually at times. So let's remember the context of Mark chapter 3. For those of you that have read ahead in the story, you know what's going to happen. 
that Jesus is going to die on the cross and Jesus is going to you know, be raised from the dead and Jesus is going to show, yes, I am the Lord, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. You're going to read throughout the Gospels and the New Testament that this family, his family, his brothers, his mother, his father, turned and they believed in him as Lord and Savior, that they were saved and, and many of them were martyred in the early church professing Christ and preaching the Gospel. So we know, for those of you that have read ahead, the end of the story that they turned from this lunatic type accusation and they will confess him by Lord, and they will be saved. But right here in Mark 3 is where we need to show them some grace because this is really throwing them for a loop. Think about it. They're saying, Jesus, you're hurting the family name. Jesus, you could be costing us customers in the woodworking business here. Jesus, we're, we're losing clients. Jesus, you're embarrassing us. Right? You're, you're out here now healing people and saying you're the Messiah and saying you're this and this. Think about it, if you will, from a brother perspective. Those of you that have siblings, stop and pause on this one. One brother could look to the other brother and go, remember the fishing trip two years ago to the Jordan River? I outfished him. Right? Remember when we were 14 and we would race? I outran him. And now as a brother looking to the older brother Jesus, you're like, wait a minute. The guy I used to outrun, the guy I used to outfish, the guy I grew up with is now casting out demons and claiming to be the Messiah? Whoa, right? I mean, stop and think, because some of you are looking at me like, well, what's the problem? What if your siblings started doing this? That's the point. Wouldn't we all take a step back and go... I've got questions, because I grew up with you, and I could beat you in some wrestling matches, and now you're doing this? You're out of your mind. So we see first the accusation, or, you know, the confession, he's Lord, the accusation that he's a lunatic, but notice also the third part of this trilemma argument, that Jesus, you're just a flat liar. Verse 22, we pick up in the scribes, who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. Now, the scribes, notice, are coming from Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 3, everything that's been happening has been happening in the Galilean region. So, uh, essentially, let me explain the Galilean re region like this to you. The country, the sticks, Nowhereville. All this has been happening in the outskirts of town. News of what's been happening out in the country has hit the big city. And the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, saying, okay, now we need to send some people out there to investigate what's going on and who is this Jesus. All right, you, you know, contingent of scribes, you go out. So verse 22, they go out, out in the country from the city to figure out what's been going on. But did you notice they're not really there to investigate? They're there to make an accusation. They say, Jesus, you're a liar. You are possessed and under the control of Beelzebub. Beelzebub means the Lord of evil spirits. Jesus, you are not of God. You are not the Son of God. You are being controlled by Satan. That's who you are. You know, when you think about this argument of, uh, of trying to figure out who Jesus is, there are 
There are plenty of you this morning that would put him in the Lord category. Yes, I believe he is the Lord. There may be a few of you that would put him in the lunatic category. Man, yeah, he was just kind of crazy. But you know where the majority of the people are? They're in the liar category. Jesus, you're really not who you said you were. I mean, because notice, they, they have the evidence there. They've, they've seen the miracles. They've seen these people who used to be blind, and now they see. They see these people who couldn't walk, and now they can walk. They've seen these people who, who, who were demon-possessed, and now they're in their right mind. But yet they say, Jesus, you're a liar. Just like some of you maybe this morning or those in our culture who have the Word of God, who, who have heard the about Christ, to have met people who Christ have changed their lives. And they said, no, 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 I, I don't believe them. And so what Jesus does here is now he shows you proof of who he is. After this accusation of being a liar, now Christ is saying, let me show you who I am. And he, he tells two parables. Let's pick up in verse 23. You see first this kingdom parable. He says, and he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand, verse 25 says. So what you see there is a, is a very easy you know, argument to understand. Christ is saying this, anything divided doesn't work. Whether it be a, a marriage, a sports team, a business, a church, a kingdom... Anything that is divided doesn't have unity, but has destruction. So Christ is saying, how am I under the control of Satan? And why would Satan cast out Satan? Why would he do that? You know, in the words of the uh, movie Princess Bride, it's inconceivable. Right? It's inconceivable at this point. It doesn't make logical sense. Why would Satan cast out Satan? That would just end Satan. That would be destruction of Satan. Notice the second parable he gives you, another way to argue this and to show you proof. He not only shows you this kingdom divided, but this house plundered. You pick up in verse 26, and he says, If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Verse 27 but, one, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So in this story, Jesus is saying, I am breaking in and I am the stronger one than the owner of the house. I am the one who binds Satan. I am the one in control. I am the one who will bring the end of him. Because Christ is very clear of his mission of what he is here to do. Mark 10, 45, Christ says, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Christ is saying throughout the gospels, I have come to set sinners free. I have come to die for you. I have come to give life to you. And so through his death and his burial and resurrection, he has now the keys to the kingdom. He has now the power over death. He has the power over sin. He has the power to set captives free. But what did Satan come to do? None of that. Satan came to enslave. 
Satan came to destroy. Satan came to cause chaos. Satan came to do the exact opposite of everything God desires. Listen, that's why it's foolish at the end of the day not to follow Christ. Because Christ has your best interest in mind. Christ loves you. He says, here's what I've come to do. Satan doesn't. Satan wants to confuse you and cause you to be with him in hell for all of eternity under the subjection and the rule of Christ. He doesn't want you to see the beauty of Jesus. He doesn't want you to see that. And that's what Satan's doing. He's not using the scribes, or he's not using Jesus in the passage to do his work. Who's he using? He's using the scribes. Let me ask you, are you a tool for Christ to advance the gospel? Or are you right now being used by Satan to advance the lies he tells? Who are you being used by? Which kingdom are you advancing? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness? Because the Bible is clear of the mission of Christ. John writes it this way in 1 John 3, 7 through 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. For no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he, is not, he has been born of God. It says this in verse 9, By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Christ. Is saying, I'm not a liar. I'm not a lunatic. I'm the Lord. But let me ask you this morning, what say you? Where, where do you put him in that category? Because I want you to notice a promise and a warning at the end of this passage. A promise and a warning at the end of this passage. Verse 28, we see a wonderful and a, a beautiful promise in which we all can celebrate as believers in Jesus and take comfort in today. He says, verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. Boy, I love that. Verse 28, did you have a hard day yesterday? You had a hard morning so far? How was the drive over with your spouse? How was the getting the kids up and ready for church? No hands up, please, but anybody get mad? Anybody have a little anger in your heart? Anybody have a crossword with the person next to you? Right. Yeah, maybe right now you could lean in and say, I love you and so does Jesus. Please forgive me. I'll take you wherever to lunch today, right? Yeah. Isn't that a good promise, verse 28? Man, we have forgiveness in Christ. For those moments of anger, moments of lust, moments of jealousy, moments of pride, of envy, 
And all, all that forgiveness wrapped up in the person and the work of Jesus. There's, there's nothing more beautiful that we can celebrate than that when we gather as people every Sunday. Every Sunday we come together and we're like, man, we're a bunch of forgiven sinners. This is good news. Right? You've had a hard week. Great. You have a Savior named Jesus. And we can come together. We're not, we shouldn't be coming together peacocking, saying I'm better than you. No. I'm a beggar who just knew where to find bread. And I'm here to tell you where to find bread. That's what we are. That's who we are. We're, we're forgiven sinners, no better than anyone else, because there's no one better than our Savior. It's a wonderful promise, verse 28. All sins are forgiven by Christ. But I want you to notice a, a warning. A warning that should cause us to pause in verse 29. It says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. That needs to hang heavy. That needs to make us stop and think, what is this? It's Christ getting at. Because I don't know about you, but when God says never, He means never. I mean, that's the separation between God and man. You, you might have had someone say to you, I will never do this again, but yet they did it. I will never leave you, but they left. I will never raise my voice against you again, but they did. We break our promises of never. God does not. So what does he mean by never if you have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Let's first start with what this is not, okay? Because I know there is some confusion a lot of times among Christians of what this means. So this is what it is not. Blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is not a one-time thing that you have done where you got mad at God and you cursed at God or you took his name in vain. That's not that. Now, that's a sin that needs to be dealt with and you need to repent of that. And that's, that's not a, an acceptable thing, but it's not that. It's not that you've taken the Lord's name in vain, you got mad at him, you got upset with him, and you, and you cursed at God that one time. That's not that. This is not something Christians do and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit within us. It's not, uh, we don't have the ability to do that as believers. I often get this question when preaching this passage. I'm worried I've done it. How do I know if I blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and committed this sin? Listen, if that's on your mind and your heart today, let me just say it this way. If you are worried you've done it, you haven't done it. Right? If you're concerned, and that means that's a good thing, the Holy Spirit's still working in you, all right? And so that's, that's good. So if you're sitting there thinking, man, I don't know if I've ever done this, then, then more likely you have it because you're asking those very questions. So what is it? What is this blaspheme against the Holy Spirit that Christ is talking about in verse 29 that there is no forgiveness for? It is this. 
I believe it is the ongoing, willful, conscious decision to reject Christ and attribute the work of Christ to the work of Satan. Okay, so I'm going to say it again. It is the ongoing, willful, conscious decision to reject Jesus and to take who Jesus is and his work and attribute it to the work of Satan. I want to draw your attention back into the text again. Verse 22, I want you to notice this. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, verse 30, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. See, that, that little phrase there, we're saying, is really important because in the Greek it says this, it's continually saying. This wasn't the only time they had said it or were going to say it. This was them saying over and over and over, no, this Jesus is a liar. This Jesus is a lunatic. This Jesus isn't of God. He's of Satan. So this sin that he speaks of in verse 29 is an ongoing, willful, conscious decision of rejecting Jesus and attributing who he is and what he does to Satan. So we've reached really the point I would call in the sermon the so what moment. Because honestly, when you read your Bible, when you listen to a sermon or a podcast of a sermon, there always comes a point mentally where you go, so what? And you know, when you hit the so what moment, that's a good moment. It's a great moment. The so what question's a great question. Literally, when I read my Bible and I journal out things, there are times I write in my journal, so what? And what the so what question is doing is driving us into application. Why does this make a difference in my life? What, what, what's, what, you know, I'm a believer in Jesus. Why does this matter? I didn't commit this sin. So what? So let me answer the so what if you've already there in your mind, or maybe you were there about 15, 20 minutes ago, okay? So here's why this matters. Number one, as believers in Jesus Christ, this ought to cause us to rejoice. It ought to cause us to love him at a deeper and deeper level than we ever have. Why? Verse 28, he forgives sins, right? We read this passage and we should say as believers in Christ, thank you for being the Lord. Thank you for being in control of all things. Thank you for having the power over Satan, over demons, over evil. Thank you for your forgiveness, Jesus Amen, right? I mean, that as believers in Christ, we read that and that should be our number one heartbeat. Thank you, Christ, for who you are. But number two, it should do this to us as believers. It should cause us to be missionally active in getting the gospel out. You know, at, at Heights, we say our mission is to love and to lead all people to a new life with Christ. And I want that to be more than a slogan on a t-shirt. I want that to be our heartbeat, to constantly be asking as a church, how do we reach one more person? How do we reach just that next person? 
I want us as a church to understand church is not about where I sit, the music we sing, where my life group location is, the temperature of the room, the traditions we have, the programs we run. Church is more than the personal preferences that we have. This is us coming together, exalting our king, equipping and encouraging each other to scatter out, to love and to lead the next person to a new life in Jesus because he and he only gives life. So it's more than just, how do I make myself comfortable? How do I make myself feel good? No, the question that drives us as believers when we read such a text is how do I reach my friend for Christ? How do I reach the family member for Christ? How do I reach my neighbor, my loved one for Jesus? That, that's why we encourage you to have a four by four plan here. And our four by four plan is simple. Find four people that don't know Christ as their Savior. Pray for them. Invite them. Share with them. Right? So find four. Pray for four. Invite the four. Share with the four. Right? That, that's who we are as believers in Christ. And at the end of our service, I'm going to be down front for a moment. And as always, I invite you if, you, if you don't feel comfortable coming during the invitation time, you know, come down at the end of the service. I'll be happy to talk with you after the service. And I, first service, we had a gentleman come up to me. And he said this. He said, would you pray for my sister right now? She's later in life. Her health is failing. And she's not a believer. He said, but today I'm going to call her. Because I need to talk to her again about Jesus. And we had a moment of prayer just together. And we prayed for her salvation. We prayed for that conversation. Prayed the Holy Spirit would embolden him and empower him. And give him words. And as he walked away, I said, yes. That's what it's about. That next person who is on the cusp, the heartbeat away from never having a chance to be saved again. That moment of death for the unbeliever, all chances are gone. No more. An eternity in hell forever. That's why you and I, as believers in Christ, our heartbeat ought to read when we have, when we read verse 29 to say, what more do I need to do? How do I reach that next person? Who's the person I need to pray for and talk with because they need Christ? So who is he? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he the Lord? I want to thank you so much for watching today's message. And I want to simply ask you a question. Is there a time in your life that you have given your life to Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life? Have you come to know him? Now, you might say, well, I know Jesus. I've heard about him. I mean, you just preached about him. I've been in church before, but that's not the question I'm asking you. Is there a time that you have given your life over to Jesus? where you have invited him in your life and simply said, Jesus, you now are the Lord and Savior of my life. I like to explain it this way. Have you given him the username and password of your life? Does he have access to all accounts in your life? See, the Bible says that we need to place our faith and our trust in Jesus in order to be saved, in order to have our sin forgiven, have a relationship with God now, and to be in heaven with God throughout all of eternity we need to trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and through the resurrection. 
Now you today may be ready to do that, but you say, I, I don't know how to do that. How do I place my faith and trust in Jesus? Well, the Bible says this, that we call out on the name of the Lord. I love what Romans chapters 10 in verse 13 says. It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when it says call on the name of the Lord, you know what that means? Just to pray. To say, you know what? I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of my life. And maybe you're watching this and say, I, I don't know how to pray. I, I've never done that. Well, I want to invite you to follow along with me. And if it's on your heart and your mind today to say, I'm ready to be a Christian. I'm ready to follow Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of my life. Then I'm going to invite you right now to pray with me. And so just right where you are, you can call out to him and simply say something like this. Dear God, today I call out to Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of my life. I place my faith and my trust in him to be my Savior. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin and giving me life forever with you, God. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, friend, if you've prayed with me today, no matter where you are, we'd love to follow up with you. You can simply go to heightschurch.org connect. That's going to take you to our website. Right there on the website, you click decision. And you let me know you've made that decision, that you've prayed that prayer with me. I'm going to be in touch with you. That information is going to come right to me and we'll help you take your next step of faith. And so thank you for watching today. I encourage you to subscribe to our Facebook page and our YouTube page so you stay current with all of our digital content. If you're ever in our area, we'd love to see you in person at a service at 9 a.m. or 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning. So till we see each other again, God bless.